Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Goodfellas, the final chapter in our Mont Rushmore with an asterisk arc. Hello and welcome to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and fellow Goodfella for this episode, <laughs> Julio Oliveira. I'm your Podfella. Yes. Uh, what does he say? We call each other Goodfellas, like, hey, he's a good guy, that type of thing. So. <laughs> He has a podcast. Hey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm going to resist all my urges to like, I, I have O with an exclamation point <laughs> throughout my notes quite reoccurringly. Uh, so I'll do my best to resist the temptation. But Julio, how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm a little intimidated, Alex. I'm not going to lie. Not since, I want to say, our Showgirls episode have I felt the pressure of tackling an iconic movie obviously for very different reasons in this case but still i would hope so it, it's one of those it's kind of like what you alluded to on our uh, facebook video the, the the preview where you're like why even bother with trivia when you know everybody knows you would think everybody knows almost everything that's that needs to be known about goodfellas so what are what are we even doing here <laughs> But much like with the Showgirls episode, I, I think we're gonna give it our best shot to to either uh, make you feel something that you haven't felt before, uh, or at the very least snuggle you comfortably uh, as we recap the tale of Henry Hill and uh, pretend that Marty Scorsese is a terrible director. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the conclusion we came to, right? Of like, well, why not? We're we're here. We have the opportunity to do this. Might as well just go for it. Wasn't that the the mindset? I mean, that's the mindset of most episodes, anyway. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, I mean, like for a movie like this, because like we joked about on the Facebook preview for this or a preview video, excuse me. There's like, you know, a whole generation of people whose identity is that Goodfellas is their favorite film, and. Uh, you know, we've done Titanic and shit like that, but this definitely seems we had Scorsese's always seemed like a bridge too far. Uh, and if this is your first time listening to our podcast, please, please don't fast forward quite yet. Make sure you understand <laughs> what it is we do here before you skip ahead and are like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? <laughs> well, 
it's best just to get to the the matter at hand, and that is Goodfellas, the Martin Scorsese film released in September of 1990. Had a budget of 25 million with a box office return of 47 million. Now that is not really um, indicative of the supernova of pop culture relevance that this movie has, but you know, as we've talked about in the many years we've been doing this, that sometimes will kind of seem to be the case. Of course, directed by old Marty Scorsese, uh, he adapted the screenplay along with Nicholas Pileggi, who also wrote Wise Guy, which is the book that this is based on, Life in a Mafia Family. 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. This book was released in 1985, took a few years for Scorsese to adapt his approach, but uh, when he decided to pull the trigger on it, no pun intended, he assembled Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, and Paul Sorvino, Amongst others, this, I mean, this movie is like, it's going to be the show The Sopranos in nine years. Keep a, you know, <laughs> it's going to help you to remember some of the characters from this. Uh, but it would go on to accrue six Academy Award nominations, which we will uh, review in the second part of the podcast. And I feel that's as good as any of a segue to what it is we do here on The Contrarians. And here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times accompanied with that beautiful logo, that IP certified fresh. And what we'll do is discuss that high rating and maybe why it's not the not the truth. Maybe it's not telling the whole story of the movie at hand. Uh, we'll discuss maybe some poor storytelling choices, bad score, uh, lazy soundtracks, overrated you know, uh, acting, or uh, massive gaping plot holes that are left with no real explanation and just something that you know we feel maybe these critics just decided to sweep under the rug to, to build this movie up. Uh, being that Goodfellas is at 96% on this first half of the podcast, we're going to try, and it's going to be hard, but we're going to do what we can to cut this iconic mob film down to size and let y'all know maybe why that Rotten Tomatoes score shouldn't be taken as uh, scripture. Uh, conversely, on alternating episodes, what we'll do is find a movie that's lowly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, usually about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and as you could guess, build that film up, discuss its positive merit, uh, single out you know, good acting, bold storytelling choices, you know, brave direction, what have you, score, soundtrack, etc., etc., all in an attempt to, number one, uh, art is subjective. You can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical about it if you truly have your mind and heart set to it. And then secondly, uh, in some cases, not necessarily speaking for Goodfellas, but in some cases, and more often than not, these Rotten Tomatoes scores don't exactly tell the whole story. And Rotten Tomatoes also uh, historically has not done much to um, educate the public at large as to what their system actually means. Uh, so that all comprises the first half, the first part uh, of our episodes. We call it Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we're discussing, in this case, Goodfellas, they just have to stick around for the second half, part two. That's correct. Part two of every episode, the aptly titled Real Talk. That's where we tell you how we really feel. We forget about the Run Tomato score. This is just about how Alex and I experience the movie, sometimes for the first time, sometimes for the tenth time. Uh, Goodfellas is one of those that I at least have seen numerous times. Um, there is no mystery. Let's not even pretend. Uh, obviously, I think you can tell if you've listen to us for a while, or if you know us in real life, or if you've seen our posts on social media, uh, Alex and I obviously like this movie, uh, which is what's going to make Contrarian's Corner so much fun. But there are some questions out there uh, that have to do with real talk. Chief among them, like I mentioned on our Facebook video, and I think I teased uh, on 
the last episode on Labor Day, will Alex finally see the light and realize that Goodfellas is a better movie than Casino? That is something that I am dying to find out. Before that, though, because this is super fresh on the tomato meter, we're going to pretend that it's a really bad movie. We are. We're going to try. Much like this movie tries to convince you that Ray Liotta is 21 years old. <laughs> De Niro is supposed to be 29 the first time you see him. That's true. <laughs> He's still just like, hey, <laughs> I see you there. It was when I met the world. It was when I first met Jimmy Conway. He couldn't have been more than 28 or 29 at the time, but he was already a legend. All right, Julio, 96%. Not surprising at all. Critics, the public, you know, just society at large obviously praises this. It, uh, it's in the National Film Registry, uh, the Library of Congress, for crying out loud. So should not be surprised with this high rating. Of those reviews submitted to comprise that 96%, which ones did you pluck? What, uh, what were the critics saying that you wanted to, to highlight here? Healthy number of reviews, Alex, but also not as many as other movies. I mean, I think this has like half the reviews that Labor Day had last episode, which is a little disconcerting. I think that maybe it's, it, it's that just some critics don't feel the need to get online and just praise Goodfellas because they're like, everybody knows it's a good movie. Now, Labor Day, let me warn you about that. But I went ahead and I grabbed fresh tomatoes from the Rotten Tomatoes webpage. We're going to start with Jim Ronner from Battleship Pretension, who says, Goodfellas is such a quintessentially American story that its appeal will likely continue to bridge across ages and experiences. Is this the American dream? <laughs> quintessentially American story? Rags to riches to rags? I, I guess. I don't know. Cocaine was a hell of a drug. <laughs> Still is, I've heard. Um... Next, Tony Black from Cultural Conversation says, It's an epic. It's powerful. It's funny. It's tough. It's rough. And by God, is it cool. <laughs> Tony dragged the Kool-Aid. I think that we have a problem when a movie about mobsters makes you think that being a mobster is cool. I mean, that's like the the over the, the resounding, overwhelming legacy of this movie, right? Is that it's cool. <laughs> it, it led to so many children just wanting to grow up to be... Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, maybe even Paul Servino. That would be a hell of a thing to tackle as a parent if your little kid was like, I want to be Paulie <laughs> from uh, Goodfellas. <laughs> like, you want to be Paul Servino? <laughs> All right. Like, are you sure you don't want to be Henry? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to close with uh, Jeffrey McNabb from The Independent UK, who says, it hasn't aged in the slightest. Uh, hard disagree. This I can see how the filmmaking was maybe considered edgy back in the 90s, but in the year 2023, when even Scorsese has kind of like ripped off Goodfellas and made The Irishman and Casino and all his other movies, I mean, it feels dated. It's, I mean, it's almost inevitable. It, it, it's very rare that you can have a movie endure for decades. And Goodfellas ain't it. Yeah, it ain't Showgirls. You know, if we're talking about the circling back to what you said, this was giving you um, flashbacks to in terms of an intimidating feat. Scorsese, that's kind of the problem with when you make the same movie over and over again, is it's basically just like updating and upgrading and making the previous one you made completely irrelevant. And then, like you said, I mean, we had The Sopranos. It was like, how can Goodfellas compete against, what, like 100 hours of television? 
the way he competed was by having a cameo in one of the first episodes. He was like, I need my thumb in this pie, baby. I don't know where this is going to go. I want to let you know I'm okay with this. In fact, I am part of it. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. All right. Well, Scorsese in Goodfellas starts us off. The year is 1970. As we're quickly introduced to our trifecta here. Uh, Henry Hill, Ray Liotta, James Conway, Bobby De Niro, and Tommy DeVito, Joe Pesci. They're driving around and come to find out there's a, a dead body, or so they think it's dead, in the trunk. Open it up. This guy's in bad shape, but still alive. Uh, Waste no time in establishing the violent tone as Pesci. Just, you know, Michael Myers would have said, brother, that's a bit extreme with <laughs> the way Pesci just takes his knife and gigs this dude. And starts off with, you know, to some, the iconic quote of ever since I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Was that like a thing in Peru? Like wanted to be gangster? Ro- <laughs> no, not necessarily that. Like, like cops and robbers and, you know, the the bad guys with the guns and shit like that. As a kid, did you ever like think of living a life of crime being on the lamb? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think that maybe we were spared that, that very specific American fantasy. <laughs> we, uh, I mean, I think the thing is, and listen, don't come at me Peruvian listeners. Cause I, I grew up there. The, the thing is that in Peru, the police force is so corrupt that really there's no difference mm. between if you're playing the cop or you're playing the robber. So uh, I I don't know. I, I think that you just grow up knowing that uh, it's all the same, and so you kind of stay away from it. So to that end, do you think movies like this are dangerous and, like, the influencing of... I mean, this is a little bit different than, you know, what would become of, like, Spring Breakers or some shit like that, where I think a whole lot of people watch that movie and... Uh, it either went over their heads or they didn't understand it was about them type thing. But, I mean, back in the early 90s here, Scorsese's painting a picture of, you know, these guys are cool, that type of thing. You know, it, this is the type of stuff that, like, Tarantino would be crucified for shortly <laughs> after this. Why does Scorsese get away with it? Like, making the bad guys good and their violence is okay, you know? I think that it was just... It's been so long since uh, since it happened that Scorsese can, like pretend that it was always meant to be a cautionary tale you know what i mean like he can turn around and be like look i also made the last temptation of christ he can he can just point out a thing saying that uh, he doesn't endorse crime he just wants to warn us about it uh tarantino doesn't really have anywhere else to point at it's like everywhere you go his movies are about criminals uh but scorsese i think that he has you know, that that variety filmography where he can kind of hide uh from the worst implications that come with this movie. Uh, I think that it just boils down to the kind of like the hypocrisy of the fact that Scorsese will say that he doesn't endorse the violence. I think, dude, we might have mentioned it almost a decade ago when we did the Taxi Driver episode. He would talk about how he was shocked when people celebrated the climax, the violence in the climax of that mm-hmm. movie. You know, and he was like, I was horrified. I was expecting people to be shocked by it, not to be pumping their fists and i think that he says similar things about uh about goodfellas and so we choose to believe him because that way we can pretend that we align with him where tarantino doesn't give you an out tarantino doesn't apologize for the violence in his movies he doesn't try to justify it he's just like yeah that's because it's so much fun jan (laughs) if you're lucky 
he engages you on that level. And if you are not, he won't even discuss it with you. <laughs> Just go like, I already talked about this. I've said my piece. And I'm shutting you down. <laughs> I'm yeah, shutting your ass down. <laughs> so we go from the present in the moment to a flashback to the, looks like the mid 50s here. And we get the story of the upbringing of Henry Hill and how he became, you know, acclimated to a life of crime. And I mean, quickly, during this elongated montage, you know, five, ten minutes into the movie, he says, wise guys already. He says, you know, wise guys, wink, we're all over the place. <laughs> Whose guys? Use guys. Wise guys. Uh, this montage introduces us to some of the other players, specifically, you know, Paul Sorvino is there as uh, Polly Cicero, uh, Frankie Carbone. We get um, Polly from The Sopranos as he's playing Tony Stacks. Uh, you know, just the, the gang is all here. It, it's it's so cliched, and it's like, you know, it's just short of them doing the thing with the, the pinching their hands together and just, <laughs> you know, saying, mod on over and over again, that type I of mean, thing. I mean, Henry works at a pizzeria. <laughs> he does, and he doesn't go to a school. He's like, the, the, they torture the mailman. Like, you don't take a letter from the school home to that kid's parents, that type of his thing. His dad it's, literally uh, takes his belt off to hit him with the belt. Oh, he does. He whips him up good, too. Um, We see, like, he helps sell cigarettes that were jacked from a truck, that type of thing. He gets pinched, you know, when he's, shit, I don't know. What do you think? 15, 16? And uh, this is how they know that he's worth keeping around, that type of thing, because he doesn't say anything, and their crooked lawyer gets him off. And then... Little did they know. (laughs) We go, and... This transitions to the future, and this is Ray Liotta now. It's 1963, and the Bamboo Club, and you know, the all the wise guys is having a good time, and we get that shot, that long panning shot around the club. That's basically just like uh, the opening of the Jetsons. It's just <laughs> here's Fat Anthony, and here's you know Nikki the Nose, and Tommy Two Time, and. Uh, I could see how this was really fun at the time, but now it's almost just kind of laughable at how like played out the whole concept of this is, you know, the cinematography is where it's at, but this, I'm curious how people would react to this today, you know, as some like exploitation thing with the, you know, how we kind of got annoyed with the pretentiousness of the filmmaking in something like um, the lighthouse. And, you know, anytime you watch something, it's, it's just natural instinct. You think to yourself, how would people interpret this today? And I and people would probably just roll their eyes at it. How do you feel about the freeze frames here? Because by now we've had maybe like 20. Like anything that becomes repetitive, it can work. But the longer your movie gets, the more unlikely that it's not going to become annoying. And, you know, we're talking about a two and a half hour movie here. Um, half an hour of that so- is freeze frames. I was about to say, it gets to a point you're like, you know what you could do instead of freezing it is move the fucking movie along. Uh, along those lines, how do you feel about Ray Liotta's voiceover? <laughs> Sounds like uh, he just woke up and he has a hangover. I forgot that it's just him and Lorraine Bracco. Like, I thought that... Is it Casino that bounces back and forth between, like, the three main characters with the, the mm-hmm. voiceover? Yeah, Casino has yeah. Uh, De Niro, Pesci, and Stone doing it. Yeah, and here it's just the male and female lead. Oh, man, you must have been so disappointed just waiting for two and a half hours for a Pesci voiceover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I figured it out pretty quick into it. It's like, ah, that's not this. 
uh, it should have started with him like dead, you know. That's fucking me. You're probably wondering how I got in this situation right here. Uh, I again, the voiceover didn't trouble me as much as the, when it cuts to Lorraine's voiceover. It's like he was just a 21 year old, and I was like, oh fuck off. It's like Skeet Ulrich being a high school student in Scream. <laughs> But the worst part is this is a true story, so you're expecting a little more authenticity, more believability. Well, for the real Henry Hill, it was probably baller. Like, it gets to be Ray Liotta, which, I mean, no bones about it. He was a hunk at this point in time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And if you watch the special features on the on the DVD, they, they have the real Henry Hill there. And, you know, if they cast Paul Shear as Henry Hill, then it would have been, like, spot on. <laughs> You're a real funny guy. Funny guy, okay? A <laughs> uh, shame, really, that they couldn't find room for Travolta here. You have a hundred uh, stereotypical Italian-American actors. And not one Danny Zuko. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to th- Who could we have put him in as? He could have been Billy Bats, talking mad Oof. shit to uh, Pesci. Oh, my God, go get your shine box. <laughs> I did my time. I mean, this was this episode was going to be disappointing if I didn't get to do one bad Travolta impression. So there you go. Really funny. Really funny. Uh-huh. What do you mean I'm funny? It's, it's funny, you know. You're, you're, it's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? If he's 21, how old is Pesci supposed to be? Because they're supposed to be 23. <laughs> I mean, it's fitting you bring that up because I always forget. I've seen this movie, you know, start to finish probably five or six times. It's one of those that like in college, whenever it would be on TV or premium channel, we'd always finish or if it was starting. Um, I always forget that it's within the the opening stanza of the film. That's the how am I funny scene? Because I always think that's like halfway through when things are kind of going off the rails. But no, we, we start off with that. And that's one of the more legendary memed scenes. Yep. You know, that's uh, people who've never even seen Goodfellas use the reaction of the way that uh, Leota's laughing in this scene and whatnot. And I don't know. It just seems kind of sophomoric. It seems like what me and my buddies would joke around with if like we were mobsters and uh, drunk and acting the fool. I mean, how is this guy, how does it take so long for Joe Pesci to get killed? I think that's the real question <laughs> right? of this movie. Because <laughs> it- the scene, he breaks a bottle over the, the maitre d's head and he causes a scene. He jokingly pulls out his gun and points it at people. It's Especially I mean, because they, mo- the movie makes the point, uh, you know, much, much later, that he was not uh, a made guy. So really, he had no protection. And neither was De Niro or Leota. So really, why did they keep him around? <laughs> well, that's the must have been nice back in 63. Because if you're anywhere today, especially in the fucking South, and you pull out a gun and start joking around, <laughs> sorry, man, you're not going to be around much longer. You're a bad guy with a gun. Beware, because there's good guys with guns everywhere. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, this scene, the- that, that line's more played out than how am I funny? <laughs> Uh, God, that would have been like Trump. Now I'm just thinking back to Trump, like, you know, because he always said there was a good guy with a gun. I'm just thinking of Trump Trump now telling like, fuck, Piers Morgan or someone interviewing him. He's like, how am I funny? I'm a clown. (laughs) I amuse you. (laughs) Now, those lines are repeated so 
much and they i'm talking about in the real world i'm talking about in the movie this, this scene the am i a clown do i amuse you scene like it goes on forever and i always forget how long it is like did they happen uh, the same happened to you where you're like let's get to the end because <laughs> i know how it works. i know he's just fucking with uh with henry uh but they just keep going and going and going uh it's not the only instance i mean it's something that i i don't know if it's just that Marty just likes to like let them run wild and then he's like I'll I'll trim it in the edit and make it concise and then you know when he gets to the edit he's just too tired and he doesn't do it but well he's like notoriously right like he'll have just like cans and cans and cans and cans of film that go unused for his movies cuz he just he can't just keep it <laughs> contained and uh disciplined doesn't have the heart to tell Pesci enough <laughs> stop it right here cut it down uh but it's it's everybody i mean i, I think the near and pesci are the the worst offenders where they just extend scenes by repeating the same thing over and over like they're later in the movie there's a moment where the Nero's mad and he's he just goes he says like five different times like what are you thinking what are you thinking what the fuck were you thinking and i'm like is that just how mobsters talk they just repeat the same are thing you over stupid and over? <laughs> yeah yeah so it makes me sad to say it, but the the scene works a lot better as a meme, just as like as, as the gif of like Pesci and Leota that you consume in like maybe five seconds, and that's it. And when you actually see it in the movie, it wastes like five minutes of your life. Called her out already, but Lorraine Bracco shows up. Jennifer the Shrink from Sopranos, of course, uh, plays Karen in this film. Um, quickly becomes after a disastrous first date, uh, becomes smitten with henry and it's you know one of the more rushed along things in the movie is they go out on a date henny youngman's there it's actually henny youngman which i forgot that it's actually him that's really cool and then they end up getting married (laughs) in classic you know 60s life uh 60s you know suburban life she has no idea what he does for a living (laughs) and he's out at night all night you know comes home in the early hours of the morning and his mother-in-law's you know, grilling him and asking Karen, what does he do? And it's basically, he minds his own business, ma. Uh, Iliota shows up drunk with Pesci, hears the commotion, turns around, gets back in the car, goes back to the strip club. I mean, as a real man would. <laughs> yes. We kind of get the, um, nothing's truncated in this, but we see kind of the maturation of the friendship between Henry and Jimmy through various clips and even in some cases pictures for the majority of the movie i was thinking i wonder who has those pictures now like i kept going back to it you know what i'm talking about when they had to do the flip book of like them just fucking around with each other he's like pouring water on him when he's sleeping and i would hope they're like framed in scorsese's home or you know some film exhibit somewhere maybe i hope that they gave uh, at least some copies to leota and he was just flipping through that book while he was watching Casino. <laughs> what happened? Where did it all go wrong, man? <laughs> did I miss Marty's call? Does he have my new number? During one of these sequences, uh, it's during some point in this. I think it's one of the dates they're on. Uh, you, you have a Sopranos watch here. Uh, uh, Big Pussy is a background character in one scene working on a coat rack. Vincent Pastor. So there you go. You got <laughs> Big Pussy, Polly, Jennifer... <laughs> We got, I don't know what any of those words mean, Alex. 
Dude, you really need to watch The Sopranos. Uh, listeners of The Contrarians, get at Julio on Twitter to get that going. Um, but I'm just I'm trying to call out any people I've I saw on this that are from The Sopranos directly because, like I said, it, they uh, Marty <laughs> erratically threw shit at the wall so that HBO could pick up the pieces in a few years and be like, <laughs> I think we can make something from this. <laughs> so is this uh this guy is he at the Copacabana or somewhere else? Where they go for dinner, it's either the first or second time. It, it, it's blink and you miss it. It's just kind of funny because, you know, he's big pussy, and <laughs> he's uh he doesn't even have any lines or anything like that. I could not find Vincent Gallo at any point. You know, Vincent Gallo's in this. Is he? Yeah, he has a credit. Man, he should have been Spider. That would have been way more satisfying. <laughs> All right, we're off the rails, similar to how Ray Liotta is going to be here in a few minutes. <laughs> we get a pretty, like, unnecessary depiction of a blowjob. You just, this dude basically buys a blowjob from his wife. This dude, meaning Henry Hill. I guess it was a simpler time. It was the 60s, right? Well, it's also supposed to be, we're still in the happy stage of their relationship. <laughs> this is the happiest they've ever been. She asks for money. He gives her money. She gets on her knees and zips his pants. And Leota kind of like looks away. There's an hour later in the movie, they're not even having sex. They're just, you know, uh, I don't even think Leota's getting a blowjob from his mistress by then. His life is way too chaotic for that. So, in Who a was way, his first mistress. Did you recognize the actress? Because Debbie no. Mazar becomes his his right his final girl. <laughs> Celebrated 90s actress Debbie Mazar. Uh, Returning to the contrarians. Yeah. No. I, all I know about the first mistress is that she's a whore, according Man. to Lorraine Brack. <laughs> Karen goes, talk about going off the rails. She takes her kids there to confront the, the Gumar. And. <laughs> Get a problem. Go ahead. Go to your ready made horse. That's all you're good for. Get out of my life. I can't stand you. So uh, let's talk a little bit about De Niro, though, because by now, I mean, we've the thing with De Niro is they introduce him, and then he kind of disappears from the movie, and then they bring him back at the end as an old man. <laughs> but there's a big chunk of Goodfellas that doesn't have Robert De Niro in a prominent role. Did you remember that? I think that was the biggest surprise as I was watching it this time. He's front and center, too. And doesn't he get top billing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's you're right. He's right in the middle of the poster. But okay, the the most well known poster. There's a there's another poster. I don't know if you've seen it that uh, has the four of them. That has Paul Sorvino also, and they kind of it's almost like they photoshopped them between Pesci and De Niro. <laughs> he's like, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm in this movie too. <laughs> I'm the boss, man. Sorvino. I mean, he's a good actor and. Obviously, oh yeah, the greatest... I'm looking at it now. I remember the. I remember seeing this. You're right. <laughs> yeah, uh, as you say, obviously the greatest contribution he did to cinema was that he gave us Vito Sorvino. But Accurate. I don't think that he was well suited for the role of like the boss, especially in a movie that's made after The Godfather. You've seen Brando as the the Godfather, the man running the business, and then you see Paul Sorvino, and it's like, what happened? How how does this guy run anything? He's just so, uh, you know, soft spoken and and he's obviously like, not running much because like he doesn't intimidate any of the guys that work beneath him. Yeah, like, Pe- Pesci is just running, you know, doing whatever the fuck he wants, and it doesn't take long for Henry and Jimmy to kind of you know 
start doing their own shit on the side with absolutely no fear of repercussion. Yeah, it's like a couple of times when people come to him with problems, he's like, what do you, you want me to do? I can't do anything. <laughs> What's the point? We jump back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. We, we come to where we began. It's back in 1970, back to the start. Uh, at a bar, uh, recently released from prison, Frank Vincent, Billy Batts is there. And, you know, he just says the wrong thing. My friend Brody used to love to tell... Uh, the, on the preview of this, I talked about the uh, XCW pro wrestling promotion, the independent wrestling scene that ran in Denton. And they had a wrestler there who was like had an Italian gimmick. And my friend Brody used to always scream at him, go get your fucking shine box. <laughs> <laughs> Playing with fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's what saying. happened to this movie. Because the difference here is Pesci, you know. He holds a grudge like an elephant never forgets, but the difference is he has to act on it within like 45 minutes of being wronged. And even that is waiting. Dude, when he walks in at the end, so it comes, he, this Billy Bats guy mouths off to um, Tommy, Joe Pesci, and they intervene, Henry and Jimmy, because they're like, hey, Billy Bats is a made man. You know, he did his time. You got to fuck off and leave him alone. So then they wait until the everyone's out of the bar except Billy Bats, and then Pesci enters scene like Michael Myers. Like he just kind of sidesteps in and he's standing there like stoically and with that like semi hunched over. Just nothing good is going to come from this type thing. And then he comes up and nothing good does happen because they just start beating the shit out of Billy Bats. This is the moment where the movie uh, finally has a story, you know, even though you don't really know it when it's happening because it's. I mean, the movie, Goodfellas, for two and a half hours or so, it's just a collection of stories from Henry Hill's life, kind of like strung together by the fact that he wanted to be a gangster, then he became a gangster, and then ultimately he stopped being a gangster because he sold out his friends. But that is a very tenuous through line to hang all your stuff on, you know? And the Billy Bats murder eventually becomes kind of a, a stronger thing that ties everything together because everything else that happens eventually we discover it's because of Billy Bats, right? Billy Bats dies, which means that now Pesci has broken <laughs> the the law, the, the gangster law, and that's what gets him in the end. And it's a big deal, but also, you know, that that, that explanation comes so much later <laughs> in the movie. So at the time, it just feels like, oh, well, this is just another random violent thing that Scorsese is showing us. And they end up killing him. We find out this is the guy from the beginning of the movie that Pesci stabs a whole bunch. The significance of what happens is he's a made man and you can't kill a made man. And they take him up kind of into the woods. It's a good drive that they make. They first stop and eat at Tommy's mom's place. Isn't that uh, Scorsese's real mom? Yep. Nepotism, yeah. baby. <laughs> you know why you haven't seen Scorsese's mom in other movies? <laughs> Same reason you haven't seen uh, Judd Apatow's kids in anything else. <laughs> Which, of course, is not true, because I, I like that show Love, and one of them is on that. But Boom. whatever the case, <laughs> self-burn on that one, <laughs> or self-owned. Uh, they bury this body. They get rid of it. Um, Paul Sorvino, Polly. that's like the next scene. He finds Ray Liotta. He's like, hey, what the fuck's going on? And you know a guy in his position knows what it's like to be lied to. And you know he knows right away that Henry's fucking feeding him bullshit. But he just lets him off with it. Because, again, Paul Sorvino's not intimidating at all. <laughs> he just he shakes his finger at, at Henry. It's like, now, please. 
<laughs> now you don't get any extra gabagool. <laughs> no sauce like, for you tonight. Oh. <laughs> and Polly's like, watch the hair. <laughs> Henry, I work really hard on my hair and he hits it. He hits my hair. Um, here's a question for you, Alex. So uh, eventually Pesci pays the ultimate price for having killed Billy Bats because Pesci's not a made man. Bats is a made man. But we know... And I'm thinking that whoever ends up finding out that Pesci killed Bats, like they also know the details of how Bats died. And so De Niro kills Bats as much as Pesci does. You know what I mean? Like uh, when they're stomping on him at the bar, you know, that's De Niro and Pesci doing the stomping. And then when they open the trunk to to really kill him, uh, Pesci stabs him and De Niro shoots him. So why don't they kill De Niro as well at the end? There's isn't there an actual reason given or is there not? Because I'm trying to remember. There's like there isn't at, at least okay. not. If, if there was, I missed it. I I just I don't think I don't know why. How did they? Okay, so number one, how did they find out that Pesci killed bats? Number two, if they found out that Pesci killed bats, how did they not know that De Niro was an accomplice in this? And third, if that's the case, then why didn't they kill De Niro as well? I don't know. Maybe it was just Pesci talked too much shit. <laughs> he was bragging about it. Yeah. He was like, uh, he was like Kai, the hatchet wielding hitchhiker. <laughs> he got really he drunk. He he wouldn't shut up about it. <laughs> uh, they have to go dig the body back up and get rid of it elsewhere in six months because an apartment complex is coming to build, which leads to what is supposed to be, I guess, a funny scene where Rayliota is vomiting and can't stomach what's happening and. Uh, he's getting hazed by by his boys, Jimmy and Tommy, because of it. Yeah, they start talking about the remains of Billy Bats as if he was, uh, a, I guess, a chicken. <laughs> you want a wing? Yeah. The boys will be boys. <laughs> we mentioned Debbie Mazar a bit earlier, but yes. Off of, uh, was it 200 Cigarettes? Is that the name of that movie? Yes. 200 Cigarettes, Empire Records. Famed 90s actress Debbie Mazar is back on the scene here on The Contrarians. Uh, as is, however, making a debut on The Contrarians, Michael Imperioli as Spider. Poor kid. He's trying to, you know, work his way through the the ranks here with the, the mob. Uh, he's the drink boy. He runs afoul of Tommy, so Tommy shoots him in the foot. He comes back, you know, with his foot all bandaged up, and he you know, takes a stand for himself and says, yeah, why don't you go fuck yourself, Tommy? And everyone laughs and at, uh, you know, the plight here of Tommy DeVito, and he does not take that too well. And as soon as Christopher, oh, from The Sopranos, Christopher enters the picture, uh, he is gunned down and killed. Uh, I think this, again, how does it take so long for Pesci to get killed? There's still like another hour left in the movie, and he's just, he's doing whatever he wants, and... I don't know. Maybe there are real people like this in the mob, but I can't imagine that, you know, the the higher up bosses would take so kindly to people just indiscriminately killing. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the whole point. Like they, that draws attention. Uh, now, for the purpose of the movie, I, I think that if I mean, we all have different levels of tolerance when it comes to just uh, negative characters, let's say. But uh, I was never on the side of, uh, oh, Joe Pesci is so amusing here. It's funny. I'm so glad that he's in the movie. Uh, but 
But okay, if even if you were, I can see how some people would be like, oh, he's the coolest character because he's just so unpredictable or whatever. But when he kills Spider, I think that the movie crosses the line. And after that, you really don't care. You know what I mean? Because he's such a, basically he's an innocent. It's not like he shot, like when he kills Billy Bats, okay, Billy Bats was an asshole. So you can see that. But with Spider, it is almost unprovoked and it it really loses the thread when it comes to the Pesci character, which is key because I think that the movie wants you to be sad when when uh, Pesci finally gets killed. It's supposed to be this this big, brutal moment. But by the time it happens, I mean, I'm sure you had a similar experience. I was like, finally, Jesus, it took this much. Why did this happen sooner? Like, you're, like you've been saying, I mean, it's a... I, I think that it should be a sad occasion, but instead it becomes very rewarding. Uh, and that's not what, what the filmmakers seem to uh, be going for. What the fucking world is coming to? How do you like that? How's that, all right? What's the fucking matter with you? What's the, what, fuck what is the fucking matter with you? What are you, stupid or what? Tom, I'm kidding with you. What the fuck are you doing? Are you what a fucking fuck? sick maniac? I don't know if you're kidding. What do you mean you're kidding? You're breaking my I'm, fucking balls? I'm fucking kidding with you. You fucking shoot the guy? He's dead. Also, I think played for sympathy or, you know, emotion from the audience is the drama that's unfolding at the the home, the Hill home, as Karen's kind of losing it. You know, she obviously uh, is drinking too much or self-medicating a bit too much, knows that Henry's up to no good uh, being, you know, unfaithful and whatnot. And there's literal physical altercations. She goes and confronts you know his uh side piece there at her apartment with her children uh we get the very famous shot of ray Liotta awaking from a nap with a gun in his face that lorraine bracco is pointing at him which of course ends with her with him hitting her and pointing the gun at her and and then her staying with him yeah exactly she's like melting down and he's not helping the situation at all but i guess we as a viewer, are we supposed to have sympathy for Karen or the situation? I think it's so weird because at first they paint her as this really strong character, right? She's had enough. She's pointing at a gun at Ray Liotta. She's she's confronting the mobster that is her her husband. And uh but then that strength doesn't carry through to her ending it. You know, and I know as we've covered uh, many times in this show, and I always go back to uh, to boyhood. Like I know that that is a cycle that happens in real life, where uh, you know people get trapped in toxic relationships, and it's really hard for them to move on, or whatever. But when it comes to telling a story, you really don't want to get that repetitive. So I think that the the natural evolution of this relationship was she falls for him. Eventually, she starts seeing the cracks. She reaches her limit, they have a confrontation, he turns violent over her, and then she leaves. But instead, the movie just basically goes back in a circle, and now she's back to being with him. And that's, uh, dramatically, that's uh, that's just boring. You know, I was ready for, for Karen to move on to the next stage in her story, and instead it's just, she's just, that. what that does is it turns her into an accessory to Henry, instead of an actual character that has her own agenda. Henry continues his work with the mob. He goes to Florida and he goes with Jimmy and they, there's a gambler that owes them some money from, uh, Oh, this is a, this is a therapy because he's moved out. <laughs> he's living with Debbie Mazar because he just doesn't want to deal with, uh, Lorian Bracco's, uh, 
hysterics. And Paul Sorvino comes over to his apartment and he's like, listen, you have to go back. You don't have to go back right now, but you have to go back. Yeah. And then he's like, just take a trip, take a vacation, go with Jimmy to Florida. And uh, they get arrested. Yeah, they go and the this gambler owes them money. They beat the shit out of him. They end up getting the money. The guy's like, they're serious. Um, but his sister is an FBI typist. And so they're arrested and they both receive 10-year sentences. Uh, they make prison look awesome in this. Yep. You just get to hang out with your boys and cook and you know drink nice wine. And uh, one guy's getting a fucking Hummer in the, the conjugal visit area. <laughs> and so... You know, if if I had to do time in prison, I, I would hope I, w- I was connected. You know what I mean? You hope uh, Paul Sorvino would be there to cook for you? Oh, yeah. The the method with the, uh, the garlic. I, I think it was Mythbusters. Someone did that one time and proved that that couldn't actually happen, that garlic will never fully dissolve. And I remember being so <laughs> disappointed by that because for, you know, years and years of my life, I just thought Paul Sorvino knew how to liquefy garlic in the pan of some oil. <laughs> They got some good looking cuts of meat though. They get fucking fresh lobster and like the cuts of meat they have look really good. So, I mean, uh, you know, (laughs) facetiousness aside, I do appreciate that there's a point in the narration to call out like, you know, you think of prison, you think of guys behind bars. Eh, If you're connected, it's not that bad. (laughs) Were you disappointed that we didn't see the Nero there? Because they, they say that they moved him to a, you know, he got sent to a different prison. To uh, be fair, we got that same thing with the, the A-team. Remember how B-Coop has, like, that loft that he lives in in the prison that he's at? <laughs> That's true. So, realistic from the A-team or just uh, wish fulfillment from uh, Goodfellas? Uh, this is the biggest, I think, plot hole with uh, De Niro and Leota and even Sorvino in prison. This is where Pesci would have died. Like, they would have come out of prison and Pesci's gone because with nobody <laughs> to protect them. Uh, you know, there's That's no very thing. true, yeah. Yeah, who's going to... Oh, unless Pesci went into hiding for a year. He he needs the attention. He craves the attention too much. There's no way he could stay out of the spotlight, you know? It's like Vince McMahon. Like, he <laughs> he went away for six months, but, you know, he just couldn't take it. But it's, <laughs> it's uh, four whole years. It's, you know, an average amount of time to go to a degree-granting institution and graduate. And uh, Henry comes out the other side, already has work lined up for himself, and gets in the cocaine racket. Circles in uh, Jimmy and Tommy with him, despite the first thing Polly tells him when he gets out is don't fucking do that. And he, it's back to the Polly being the, mo- the least intimidating mob boss ever. His immediate thoughts like, he ain't going to do shit. And, you know, Scorsese... Uh, subscribing to the school of thought that writers who are subtle or cowards transitions from this into a very loud montage of cocaine dealing set to Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. <laughs> a song that I'm pretty sure he's used in other movies as well. Oh yeah, it's his go-to. I mean, he has a hard-on for the Stones to begin with, but uh, Give Me Shelter is, is his go-to. Uh, a heist is planned. They're going to hold up an incoming load of cargo Coming into JFK, it be potentially up to like $4 million they can make off this. It's successfully executed, and it's one of the Alex, biggest who, heists. Who, wait, who gives him the tip? Who is it? I don't know. Maury. We haven't talked about Maury yet. Oh, the, the wig king. Yeah. So tell me about Maury, Julio. 
he's great. I'm sure he's someone's favorite character. He has to be <laughs> because he's so, uh, you know, I think that if you watch Goodfellas enough times, you eventually move past the, the the big players and you start developing an affinity for the smaller characters, you know, and you have Frankie and you have Polly and you have uh, uh, whatever Sam Jackson's called. And then you have, you have Maury, who's, uh, uh, you know, he kind of has an arc. He has like a tragic story. The, the, the rise and fall of Maury is like a smaller, a smaller version of the rise and fall of Leota. Um, he, when we first meet him in the movie, you know, years and years ago, he owes the Nero money and the Nero roughs him up. And the thing about Mori is that he actually stands up to the Nero, which I love, but also doesn't make sense, you know, because the Nero may not be as crazy as Pesci, but he's still pretty scary. Uh, and, and, you know, Leota's voiceover confirms that he's, he's a scary guy. And then we see him like he almost strangles Mori with a telephone line. So it doesn't make sense to me that Mori wouldn't, uh, wouldn't pay the Nero, you know, like the Nero points out in that first scene, it's like, you had money for the commercial, why don't you pay me? But furthermore, later in the story, Mori has this tip, uh, you know, that ends up resulting in the, is it the Lufthansa heist? Is that the... I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and so... That's the one in GTA 5 when you get the, you rob the jewelry store, right? <laughs> is it? <laughs> Do they play Layla at the end of that level? Uh, probably, that... You know how much fucking money that game costs to make just to do the licensing rights for the music? Um, so Mori, I guess the, the point about Mori is that for some reason, either a lack of self-preservation instincts or just pure bravery, he doesn't seem afraid of Robert De Niro. Like I said, it's very endearing, but also doesn't make sense because De Niro is established as a killer. And uh, Mori, later when this heist happens, you know, he he feels he's outraged that he hasn't received this cut. And he spends several scenes just nagging at De Niro for his cut until, you know, he meets a, a tragic end. So Yeah, he's pretty ballsy. He has to be told to not because he's just going to go up and be like, Jimmy, what the fuck? And he has to be told repeatedly by Ray Liotta. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll take care of it. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work because he still gets whacked in the end. We haven't said whacked yet, so it's important <laughs> to bring that up. All right. Fuck him. I want my money. Henry, I want my fucking money. I had it up to here. All right. That cheap cigarette hijacking. Mori. No, fuck him. I want my money. So the heist is successful. We get a not random, but just kind of, oh, yeah, Samuel Jackson is in this movie type thing. And I was looking at his credits. He, people would have known who he was because he was in Do the Right Thing the year prior. Uh, he obviously wasn't fucking Samuel Jackson by this point, but he had been in a few movies. And he was a bad guy at this stage of his career. Yeah. He was in The Exorcist 3 prior to Goodfellas, both coming out. He had one, two, three, four, five. He had seven movies come out in 1990. Uh, a sure sign of things to come with Mr. Samuel L. Jackson, who, you know, we joke about uh, the Tommy DeVito character getting bored. That's kind of Sam Manford. A couple decades there, it really just seemed like, you know, he couldn't stay at home and just look out the window he had to be on set somewhere <laughs> we made allusion to this earlier but these idiots after the heist one of them goes and buys a nice car one of them buys like a twenty thousand dollar mink coat for their wife and we get de niro using the line are you stupid approximately 57 times within the <laughs> the span of about four minutes this uh, is a this is a true story i guess so how did these guys not get caught sooner 
if they're this dumb? Because they couldn't. Dead men tell no tales, you know. <laughs> the next scene is Samuel gets shot in the back of the head, and then we get the legendary Layla montage where all the other guys that were acting stupid, um, one of them's frozen to death. One of them, you know, the the pink Cadillac they're shot up in there, and uh, it's you know it's bad news. That but he gave him a chance. Told him don't do anything stupid. And the first thing they did was went and did something stupid. Now, what what are the logistics of this? Because I don't I don't think uh, Ray Liotta was involved in all these murders, and uh, and we know that there was Jimmy. Like De Niro was De Niro was doing it. Like, is he the only one? Is he going around and like just by himself killing everybody, or is he? Does he have a crew of people that are killing them? But that crew has to at some point realize that they're next. You know what I mean? Like De Niro's killing everybody, every witness. They paid Vincent Gallo to do it. <laughs> all those deleted scenes. Vincent Gallo just murdering all these mobsters. With Scorsese whispering to, you know, his, uh, uh, the DA inside, just, Christ, this guy fucking sucks. <laughs> uh, I can just imagine De Niro with a, with a crew of assassins that get smaller and smaller as, <laughs> as the montage goes on. And then at the end, De Niro's like, and then I killed the driver. <laughs> We learn that Tommy is going to be a made man, so that's basically where we're heading here. Uh, that doesn't okay, that, work out. Real talk, Alex. Mm-hmm. I mean, real talk on Transcorner. Do you remember, like, the first time you were watching this, you didn't know what was going to happen. Were you irritated that Pesci was about to become a, a full-time modified mobster? Like, did you think, was your thought, like mine was, like, oh my God, he's going to be even more unbearable now. Uh, to be truthful, I remember the first time I watched this, I I had a pretty ominous feeling about what was going to happen with uh, Pesci, and it obviously turned out to be true. Well, De Niro takes it, it's really weird, because he's a really good actor, but it's kind of weird that he can't bring himself to cry over Joe Pesci. <laughs> Did you get that feeling in that scene? He gets a phone call, and uh, they, they tell him, kind of in code, that Pesci didn't make it, and then... It's like he's trying to cry, but the tears are not coming. And Ray Liotta is by his side looking really concerned. <laughs> yeah, like he's he thinks he should be more emotional than he actually is to this news. Because, yes, if you haven't seen Goodfellas and you're still keeping up here, uh, he goes to get made and it is not to be as Joe Pesci is shot in the back of the head. The hellacious squib and like psh, uh, fountain of blood that accompanies it. They don't kill people like they used to anymore. No, and then yeah, De Niro has the classic reaction of slamming the the payphone on the hook a few times and, and trying really hard to cry. <laughs> I think for the most part, though, if you're an adult watching this, you're like, well, you know, he should have gotten it sooner, Pesci. That is, and, you know. yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, you know, if you can separate yourself from the emotions enough, like I guess you can feel a little bad because of uh, Tommy's mom, which is Scorsese's mom, because she. You know, she seemed like an okay lady. She she liked to paint. She clearly had no idea what uh, Tommy did for a living. And uh, I think if, if Scorsese really wanted to uh, pull at our heartstrings, then we should have had a scene of uh, Tommy's mom finding out that he died. But mm-hmm. he, the coward, doesn't go there. Probably because that was probably too much to ask from his mother, who's not an actual actress. <laughs> But we do learn the reasoning for this is Billy Bats. He was a made man and Tommy wasn't. So sorry, brother. You're out you're out the game. 
Uh, it's now 1980. We get our Kevin Corrigan, Martin Scorsese crossover, a sign of things to come here. He's um, Henry's wheelchair-bound brother that we're introduced to in the, the opening montage of the film. Hank's in rough shape, though, man. He's doing copious amounts of blow. Looks like he's not sleeping. I mean, Karen's in no better shape either. He's aware that there's this helicopter that's been following him all day, and he's got these plans for drug dealing and um, sending someone on a plane with you know a, a brick of coke to take with them you know to complete this deal and he's getting all these shipments in from pittsburgh and doing all the things that he shouldn't be doing and he gets pinched again the cops uh get him pull him in debbie mazar it pays off that he uh bought her a dishwasher because all the stuff they kept cocaine and he kept telling her to wash and she never <laughs> did any of it and uh, so that uh that pays off because that's how they kind of get him on the charges here I mean, I think that they had him from so many angles because also the the babysitter that was helping them, he tells her not to call on the on the home line to call from a payphone, but she calls from the home line, and uh, I kind of get the feeling that he was he was done no matter what. Uh, this is Alex the, the famous helicopter sequence, and yeah. really, I have to say, Uncut James did it better as far as building up the tension and just giving you like nonstop anxiety don't you think so like maybe back in the 90s yeah sure but now we we live in the in the post uncut james world and that's you can't unsee it right, so i was home for about an hour now my plan was to start the dinner early so karen and i could unload the guns that jimmy didn't want and then get the package for lois to take to atlanta for her trip later that Who's night been carving their initials in the so he goes away uh, he's arrested again he's put in jail uh, he just, his main concern is getting to Polly and explaining what's happening. He's like talking about how, you know, I'm, I'm going to be dead quicker inside than out. Cause they think I'm going to start talking. And so he convinces Karen to tell her mom to put her house up so he can make bail. He's out. He goes to Polly to try to make things right. Polly gives him a little bit of money cause they have nothing. You know, when the cops came, Karen flushed all the Coke down the drain, 60 grand worth. Uh, she flushed down the toilet, some fucking tweaking rats in the sewers below their house um, <laughs> and Polly listens to him gives him a, a pocket of cash to kind of help him out which I think he said was three grand and then he tells him now I have to turn my back on you so it's done uh, he meets with Jimmy but well, Jimmy hugs him he hugs him first because it's Paul Sorvino he, he so he's a sweetheart yeah. again your standard mob boss would have had him killed long ago but <laughs> he's got a soft spot Polly does and so Henry goes and meets with Jimmy, and Jimmy's particularly paranoid. He got there, you know, early for the breakfast they were having, and he asked him to go to Florida to whack somebody, and he had never asked Henry to whack anybody ever. So he knows that if he goes down there, he's going to die. And this is where he sells out. He becomes an informant. He is going to be placed in the witness relocation program and sells out everything. We get the courtroom scene where he points out Polly and Jimmy, and you know sends them away for you know Polly's case till till he died in prison and then uh, I guess I'm not sure exactly what happened with Jimmy that's that he was he eligible, was eligible for parole yeah when he was 70 right yeah it was so, going to be in 2004 which I love the idea of watching this movie in 1990 like 2004 that's that's forever away we have time to prepare for whenever <laughs> Jimmy Conway comes out <laughs> we'll be ready we'll be waiting for him I wonder if they play good fellas in prison. <laughs> Shut up. We're watching the TV. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, your scene's coming up. The one where you have the big glasses. 
What do you think of De Niro's glasses? I love that that's how... That's how we know that time passes in the Goodfellas universe. Like, De Niro's hair first goes... First he goes gray, and then he gets these gigantic glasses that uh, distort his eyes. That's, like, the lasting image we have of him at the end. That's how I vision him in prison, just in, like, the orange jumper and then those glasses on with his slicked back gray hair. So he's, you know, in every town America now. He talks about, you know, he's... An average nobody calls himself a schnook, which I had to look that up. It's an easily imposed upon or cheated person, a pitifully meek person, a particularly gullible person, a cute or mischievous person or child. Uh, So I think in this case, he means a pitifully meek person. Talks about he can't even get good food. I ordered spaghetti when I got here and I got egg noodles and ketchup. Uh, And he's, you know, it'll, everything's gone. He rode on the edge of a lightning bolt and flew too close to the sun. And now, you know, he'll pay for it with the rest of his life and just being uh, Joe Schmo. He says, I'm one of you now. And then something I always forget is that the movie ends with Sid Vicious's cover of My Way, um, which <laughs> you could argue is wildly inconsistent with the tone and soundtrack of this movie. I thought you were going to say that you always forget that the movie ends with Joe Pesci back from the dead wearing a fedora shooting at the screen. What's the significance of that, Julio? Tell me what you think the significance of that is. Um, that death is coming for all of us. And is he the Grim Reaper? I guess. You know, there's always there's always a Joe Pesci out there, I think. And he's gunning for you, whether you know it or not. Or, or uh, after... Because the last, you know, the last speech that Leota does, he breaks the fourth wall. He literally starts addressing the camera. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's Scorsese and and, uh, and the screenwriter, they just kind of threw their hands up in the air and they're like, fuck it, just, just he, tells, he tells the meaning of the movie to the audience directly and then insults them. And then what? And then, and then Joe Pesci shoots them. That's it. That's your punishment. That's what you get for rooting for these mobsters for two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, I just, I was like aghast because I completely forgot it ends with My Way by Sid Vicious. I'm sorry, I can't understate this. Like when Grand Torino ends and it's Clint Eastwood singing the yes. credit song? Pretty much. I, I've now in my brain am convinced that Scorsese had in his mind he was going to end a movie with the Sid Vicious cover of My Way and then wrote backwards. <laughs> He's like, I'll figure it out from there. <laughs> oh, boy. I feel So ends the tale of Henry Hill. Yeah, I feel bad of having to try to be cynical about that movie, I tell you what. <laughs> well, you made it, Alex. Uh, to quote Paul Sorino, you broke your cherry. Like, I've never God. heard people say break your cherry. I always hear pop your cherry. Either way, I that's an expression. You know, some people don't like the word moist. Like when I hear pop your cherry, I, I just like my skin crawls. I'm like, ew. Even when delivered by uh, fantastic character actor Paul Sorvino? I mean, he, like everything else he says in this, has a teddy bear quality about it. So I'm just like, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, enough of this. Let's Let's go to real talk. Let's do it. 